everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Justine Barron, who is the author of the book, They Killed Freddie Gray. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how did you come to writing this book? Uh, It started actually a long time ago. I worked on a podcast called Undisclosed, which normally handles wrongful convictions. You know, they they played a big role in getting um, Anand Syed free from prison. He's from the podcast Serial. Um, and so we, me and this woman named Amelia McDonald Perry, she's a journalist, we were sort of asked to look at Friday, the Freddie Gray case. I'd never done anything like it before. And just the, just the most minor kind of excavation of what was publicly known. And it was apparent to us that everyone had been lied to. It just seemed obvious. So we started investigating. Um, we did a little podcast series and then a couple of years later, somebody gave me like mounds of evidence. And that's when I had a book. Um, so that's how, how it happened. And what's your background? I, I know you mentioned the podcast, but uh, but what what's your larger background? Yeah, I actually had no journalism background at all. You know, decades of, um, I was a writer. I, I, used, I did professional writing for nonprofits. Mostly that's how I made money. And I, um, I was also like writing for film, television, storytelling, my own creative pursuits, you know, um, did live storytelling on stage. But the, I landed on this because I began writing about true crime sort of from a fan perspective and because I knew something about criminal justice from my work. So that was it. And then once I did the podcast, I got hooked on investigating the Baltimore Police Department in particular and Baltimore corruption, because it's just, there was something addictive about exposing it because it was, it's so bad. And And I'm, I'm sure like a lot of other places, you know, um, Baltimore has its own unique way of um, covering up and lying to the public. And, and we'll dive into some of this stuff in a second here, but I'm kind of curious, you know, what was it like investigating a case that was this high profile? 
Well, the positive is that there's a lot of um, public material. There were four trials. There were a lot of news reports. And, you know, I'm not excavating the news looking for the news printing fact. I'm looking for statements exposing people. So that was the positive. And it's positive to have an impact because the Freddie Gray case had an impact worldwide and it had a huge impact in Baltimore. I mean, it was defining of a lot of things in Baltimore. They still talk about it. So that was the positive. The negative is that a lot of people's minds were really fixed on what they thought happened and were really kind of condescending about if you were introducing new evidence or a new way to look at it. A lot of um, media folks, officials, cops, just like regular talking heads in Baltimore were kind of, um, it took a long time to convince them that they had this story wrong because who was I, you know? They weren't interested. <laughs> they, they thought they knew everything based on what they were told, unfortunately. And so, I, I mean, I'm kind of curious and I, I have your book on my list to read, but I confess I haven't read it yet. Um, so, you know, without like, uh, you know, being a spoiler, I mean, what is the actual story here? No, it's fine. I mean, spoiling it doesn't take away from the experience of reading the book because you can only, and I've already spoiled it in the media. <laughs> um, it was more important for me to get the truth out than, you know, hold on to a few readers who might be wanting suspense and discovery. It's a police brutality case. It's not like a murder of the week. Um, yeah, so uh, Freddie Gray, they, we were told that he was killed while the van was in motion. It was called a rough ride. That's what the prosecution put on. The prosecutors went after six cops and charged them unsuccessfully based on this idea that at some point while the van was moving that was transporting Gray to central booking on a knife arrest, that the van must have like thrown him forward and his neck was broken. And that was the prevailing theory still to this day, Wikipedia, whatever. Um, and then some people thought, well, maybe he was actually killed when he was arrested because he was screaming when he was loaded into the van. So those were the two options. And what we discovered was that it was a third story, that the van went around the corner and some officers took him out and then they threw him headfirst into the van. And they were like a, a large number of witnesses to it. So really my story is about how do people see something, report on it right away, and yet the public never learns that. And so why is it that the public never learned that truth? Um, well, it was deliberate suppression by both the police department and the prosecutors who claimed to be seeking justice, but they also suppressed this evidence. And then it was a failure on the part of the media to do the work that it should do um, by believing and repeating what it was told and by not taking seriously the account of the residents of the neighborhood that Freddie Gray was from, which is a predominantly poor black neighborhood. So it was a, a massive media failure and that's a big theme and, and topic in my book. Um, so you put the blame on the media. The media is one party to blame, and, and in some ways the most significant because um, the media is reinforces the narrative that the police want to tell and like inscribes it in history. And so 
personally, you know, I take that personally um, as a journalist now, but um, yeah, they hold a ton of responsibility. You, and I chart how each certain outlets, particularly the Baltimore Sun, were um, manipulated into shifting focus from the witnesses and and churning out stories based on what the police told them happened, even though the police's story was like convoluted and bizarre and didn't add up and all over the place. But it has something to do with what the press considers its function, which is not what we think of when we think of movies like Spotlight or, um, you know, all the president's men. We have a romanticized idea about what the press should be doing. And occasionally it does, but by and large, it doesn't. So you're basically saying that press acted as a PR agent for the police rather than an investigatory um, entity. It's not a metaphor. I mean, there were some little investigations here and there, but ultimately they would give into the police narrative. It's not a metaphor because there were like maps and interactive charts and timelines and videos made specifically to puff up the police investigators and the police narrative. And I actually wrote about that for, um, there's a news outlet called Fairness and Accuracy in Media. And I published a story, you know, that take draws from my book, but goes much further into the Baltimore Sun's role in particular in this PR capacity. And I outline where, again, it's not like a metaphor or like kind of PR, it was just literal public relations. And, and and why is it that you think that the media took on that role? And, and why in this particular case? Well, in all cases. So I, I mean, I, I, I spent a long number of years, six or seven, just like looking really closely at the Baltimore media. And, and this was like no exception. This is just what it does. Um, and the whys, you know, it's a tangled story. Um, there are personalities involved. Basically, to be like successful at local media, at least in Baltimore, at least in this context, it took a certain personality that um, that was very aligned with powerful interests and saw their job as kind of like gossip. And, you know, that's where their sources were. That's it. There are these certain types, these like they go to journalism school and they get trained to like take a police or an official press release as the basis of their story. They also don't get a lot of time to go out in the community and deeply investigate. But I think there were some cases where people had more to the story and the editors kind of killed it or cut it out, the witness accounts. And I do think there is an editorial bias which is that if it, if the statement comes from police, we can print it without anything to back it up. But if the statement comes from a community member and it goes against the police narrative, we can't necessarily just print it. And so there's, it's just, it's, uh, I don't know what to tell you. When you really begin to examine these things, you realize how like everything from word choice to the structure of stories, to edit sourcing is, is um, filtered through this bias that supports powerful interests and is reluctant to take them on. Now, were you able to talk to reporters who were on the ground? So I talked to two kinds. There were, um, my book 
you know, is critical of the mainstream media's approach to this story. But there are also some journalism heroes in my book. They were operating like completely independently. Not all of them were even journalists. They were just busy investigating with cameras on the street. Or um, one guy was like out in California um, breaking down the videos that were released and figuring out where they were manipulated. Like people who were just interested in, you know, taking on power. So when I, they have like, when I talk to them, they were as frustrated as me, you know? And then the other set was me reaching out to these um, mainstream reporters and asking them hard questions. And um, they were uh, not happy. <laughs> like they did not want to engage. There was one woman who like, she was married to a lead prosecutor, um, is now married to the lead prosecutor of the case. Her reporting is very like, huh. And she got really, there was a lot of like, hostility and like, um, you know, defensiveness from that community, more so than when I interviewed police officers, like far more so. Police officers would either talk to me and tell me their truth or say, no, thank you. Media people got, um, they're not used to being subjects. Right. And they're not used to being, um, they, they, wield power through the creation of narratives so they don't want to be inside of that so from your perspective then why is it that the prosecutor's office which you know it's led by an interesting person right you know yeah. marilyn mosby uh kind of the cutting edge really at one point of kind of these more progressive prosecutors she got a lot of kudos from at least the progressive side of the world for for even taking on uh, the police uh, at a time when, you know, in, in other jurisdictions, the police weren't even uh, or the DA wasn't even bringing charges against police officers. She ultimately lost. Um, and of course, she got criticized pretty heavily from the right just for taking it on. But. It seems like you're saying that they share some of the blame here. Oh, actually a very, very large amount of it. Because what happened was there was a protest movement. I'm sure everyone remembers the Baltimore uprising, like thousand people in the streets and then riots. The riots are another story. Um, but uh, the charges she brought ended the protest movement. So they were they play they played a role in like quieting resistance, but um, you know it wasn't a sincere investigation by her office. It was a political maneuver. Um, we know that because I report on notes from their meetings from her office. You know, insight into the work she had done, statements made in court, and a very detailed examination of the trials. So. A couple of things. One is like, sure, if you speed an investigation for a political gain, and then you give a really big speech where you outline everything that you think happened before you've actually investigated it, then you're going to be kind of tied to that narrative. So they hadn't investigated it, but she went and gave a speech where she said, here's what happened that whole morning. And she was by and large wrong. So that was part of it. Part of it was like a foible, right? But there's another part of it, which is that we have to think about what prosecutors do. 
and their relationship to police departments and how much they are willing to really go after police departments. There was a ton of corruption in this case that her office knew about and didn't bring forward because ultimately she had to keep working with the police. Her office had to build all of its cases off of the police department. So there was like, there was the incompetence part and there was the corruption part. And there was a sort of mutual decision among various city leaders that they could focus the blame on the van driver for this rough ride and that that would be somehow expedient. But what really happened was a number of officers were involved in a murder and a cover-up. And that would not have been as politically expedient. The, the van driver is also black and we see a lot in these cases it happened in, I think, with Tyree Nichols, too. It's like the white officers skate by and the black officers get the blame focused on them. And this is just like, this isn't even conscious. This is just entrenched racism, like systems of blame and scapegoating. So how ultimately did you get to the truth? Um, well, you know, the the thesis, you know, there's like hypothesis, thesis, conclusion, or something like that, right? Isn't that the scientific process, right? right. So our first hypothesis in the podcast was that it wasn't a roughness who described force. He seemed brutalized. And the story of the rough ride and, and the van taking all these stops, it didn't, it didn't um, hold. So our first hypothesis was that he must have been killed at some point during his arrest. But the video, there's a video of the first stop of his arrest. And he doesn't, he looks harmed and he's screaming, but he doesn't look like he has a broken neck yet. So that's where we got stuck. It was like, what are we going to do? We have, we, we just know it's not a rough ride, but it doesn't look like his neck is broken here. He's moving it. He's talking. And my investigative partner met a witness, Jacqueline Jackson. She's passed away since. And Jacqueline had ha her window was looking right out of the second stop when the van pulled around the corner. And she, and the other thing about, by the way, about his injury is that it's the kind of injury that only happens if someone is thrown headfirst into a van, which is why the, into a wall, which is why the rough ride maybe sounded like it could be. But Jacqueline Jackson said she saw out of her window that they threw him headfirst into the van. And she said she could tell that he was killed then. Like she, she was sure. And she had like very good details. So we had that for the podcast. And a couple witnesses also saw him thrown. And that's all we had. So that was where we went from hypothesis to theory. And then when I got that ton of evidence, what I discovered was that they were witness after witness telling police that he was thrown headfirst into the van became silent and motionless after that, at the second stop, so that police and prosecutors knew from the beginning and that they started telling them that day. And then there was like the mounds of evidence that they tried to bury that. And that's when I went from theory to like extremely likely conclusion. So <laughs> a little insight into the, it's, it's scientific and you know, the process. Right. Um. And, and what were the barriers to you finding this out? Yeah, I mean, the tough thing with a case like this is that you have two sides, right? You have the police and the prosecutors. 
but they were both invested in burying the same evidence. So both sides were giving us case files we would request and we would get, but they were both keeping the same case files from us. But we would get a little from here and a little from here and more and more put it together. But the person who gave me everything should not have given it to me. You know, you have the police, you have the prosecutors, you have the defense attorneys. Those are the only people who knew, the cops. And none of them should have been interested in helping me. But they're sometimes good people, you know? And so the barriers were that everybody was invested in hiding the same information. And the opportunity was just in developing sources, relationships with sources over years. And how how many years are we talking about? The we started the investigation in 2016. 2017, our podcast series ran. It like it just didn't land the way we wanted it to. It didn't have enough of an impact. And then I took a couple years off of that, but I was investigating the police department. So everything I was learning was contributing. You know what I mean? Because it's like the same characters. And then in 20 at the beginning of 2020, I got the rest of the evidence. And I was developing that, like there's a film, a film project maybe, and the book over the next two years. So that's how it happened. There was like a break in between, but in that break, I was still cultivating sources and information that ultimately helped me, you know? Um, now you mentioned um, that there's unbelievable corruption. I, I forget the exact word you used, but it was that something works. along that line. Um, can you describe, you know, corruption is kind of a nebulous term, um, that often gets misused in, in this context, what are you referring to? I mean, that's a great question. I would say it comes like, it takes these forms, lying to the public. So you have like a deputy commissioner saying, we have no evidence of force, not even statements. And it was like a flat out lie. There was um, physical evidence on his body. There were tons of statements. You know, there was some video evidence that they buried. So there's lying to the public. That's corruption. Um, there's manipulation of evidence. So I have a chapter that I published in the Daily Beast, which is about how the video evidence was manipulated. So they released a bunch of video evidence to the public, but they had edited it, you know? So, and I'm able to show exactly how. I mean, it wasn't that hard to figure out. It was just like, it took more time than most journalists have. Um, so lying, manipulation, and then the hiding of evidence. So, you know, and then I think another thing is conflicts of interest. So um, the lead prosecutor had some of those, like um, Marilyn Mosby had some conflicts of interest. Her, the, the attorney representing the family, like was her advisor and friend and they like negotiated a settlement that would, that would put a gag order on the family. Like, so there's these conflicts of interest. Um, so that's really where I see corruption. I think those things. Um, interesting. Um, and then, um, you, you also mentioned the riots are another story. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious as to what that story is. It's so crazy that I don't even know if you'll believe me if I say it, but if you read it, you'll believe me. Cause I haven't had anyone read it. And, and this is actually pretty well known in Baltimore, but it never really got outside of Baltimore. So it was peaceful protests 
And there were two nights of rioting, kind of. The first one was mild. It was like some kids beating some police cars. And that was kind of organic. The second was the night when all the fires happened, you know, the major. That was on the day of Freddie Gray's funeral. So that wouldn't have happened if police didn't purposefully provoke it. So that's the story. It's a long story, kind of like too much to get into, but there was like propaganda campaigns. They were locking down neighborhoods, locking people in areas. There was observing and allowing violence. There was police setting off their own violence. It was um, purposeful. And this is happening right at the time or, or right around the time that riots are happening elsewhere too. So so like everyone's really concerned that these riots are going to kind of start getting out of control. And it seems to me, um, based on how you described it, is that, you know, um, Mosby kind of stepped into it just to quell the riots and not worry about the actual prosecution. Would that be? Yeah, you know, right. So um, you had talked about her as a progressive prosecutor. But, you know, something I write about and others have mentioned is that like her acts in this case were the most conservative because it was an effort to suppress dissent and manufacture consent. That makes sense. Um, And then, you know, I'm kind of wondering, you know, um, why is Freddie Gray still relevant now? Uh, We've had so many, unfortunately, of these kinds of cases over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so. Um, Why is this one, you know, still kind of resonating? Um, A few of them still resonate, you know, but I think this one, you know, the open wounds, I think the case was pretty much kind of left unsolved. It wasn't like clear cut, like with George Floyd or Eric Garner. Um, The fact that there was this like prosecution that was so dramatic that was completely unsuccessful. So I think it has a lot to do with that. And I think that really ties into the character of Baltimore being a place that just doesn't get resolution or healing ever. Um, And what do you see the lessons of this as? Um, You know, something that was really important for me like one mission is that um, the power of like a police lie and how far it can go. You know, the the story, there's a lot of details about how this was covered up. There was a cover story the first day that he was like banging his head. They planted a witness to push that story. There was this idea that he caused the van to shake. There's all these micro narratives. And most of the narratives come out of the Lieutenant Brian Rice. And the Lieutenant Brian Rice had a bad back backstory. Like he had suspensions and he shouldn't have been on the streets. So he crafted the initial narrative and that narrative went on to influence the medical examiner, the prosecutors, city hall, the media. And so he just like sat there and like lied his ass off. And that became the story in Wikipedia today. And there were like 20 witnesses who never got that chance to write the history of this. So, you know, I think like vigilance in the face of police stories, vigilance in the face of police evidence, you know, autopsies, video evidence, what are these things? Who handles them, creates them and releases them? 
that's really my big takeaway. All of it is relevant with Israel and Palestine now. Like I see the same ways that the media um, creates narrative, like gets partial confusing and maybe dishonest narrative and creates, you know, binaries and mysteries and like all of that. So it's not just about police, it's about power. The officers basically just get away with murder here. Um, yeah, you know, they were, uh, I don't know if, I, I don't know if it's first degree. I definitely don't think they meant to kill him, but it was some form of a negligent type of homicide. And then, and then many of them and many superiors got away with covering it up, which is like, in some ways worse because, you know, accidentally killing someone for mishandling them is terrible. And th those cops shouldn't be on the streets if they can't handle a prisoner properly. But, you know, to just decide that this family doesn't deserve justice and nobody deserves to know is like, whew. And unfortunately, that seems to be the story of too many of these, that it's not just the, you know, bad act, but it's also what happens afterwards. That's the biggest problem in, in police departments. It's like, there's no culture of accountability in these departments. And the... And the police leaders who are um, the most influential in creating police culture in this country, like these consultants, like William Bratton, these like very powerful police leaders, like they also train departments, not in accountability. That's not part of what they do, but in handling situations. So if there is no ethos, like they, the police departments feel it is important for them to retain their power, retain their authority, retain their image, and therefore handle these situations expeditiously, expeditiously and in ways that minimize um, harm to the department. So in your view, are things getting better or are they just the same now? It just looks different cosmetic change only like there the under obama like he <laughs> he did the obama thing which is like pour a lot of money at a problem but the money goes to the people that caused the problem so that's kind of what happened with healthcare with obama you know so he like he was like i've got a task force to take on 21st century policing and we're going to fix policing and we're going to have all these consent decrees so these departments are going to be under federal observation, but the money went to the same people that have been running policing forever. Because who else was he gonna give the money to? He didn't, politicians like see problems with policing, but they don't trust non-police to handle it. So they're never gonna get out of this situation. So what's next for you? Um, I don't know, a few things I'm like thinking about so we'll see. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I've got a few irons in the fire with some Baltimore stuff and non-Baltimore stuff. Hopefully something that comes close to the experience of writing this book. So, um, so wrapping up, uh, some closing thoughts. You know, Trump was like, uh, what was his phrase again about the media and about how he thought it lied? Uh, I forget, he had like a phrase that he always said to indicate as if the media was always lying. 
I can't think of it right now. And so that got kind of associated with Trumpism to think that the media was always lying, false facts or whatever. And I would say that, you know, he wasn't like always wrong and that there is, um, there is sort of a problem that's very, very serious with the media and that people should not necessarily feel like what they're reading is accurate or that they have to, that, that if they question it, that they're somehow reactionary like Trump. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts on your book. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking with Justine Barron, author of the book that just came out in August. It uh, sounds really fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading it later this week. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next week for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.